0: Good morning. morning. It's a pleasure to get to be here with you this morning and um, to get to deliver the lesson. Chris is, is, well he's not technically out of town because he already came back, but Chris is getting a day off today and so I'm excited to get to deliver the message. I want to start with asking a question. What is the greatest gift you have ever received? Mine happens to be I have to be careful because my wife and my in-laws and my parents are here, but I'm going to say this anyway. Mine happens to be Blaine and Rachel Whitlock socks. <laughs> okay? And I got them at the, uh, at the young adult Christmas party last weekend. Um, you know, the tagline, the gift that keeps on giving, has been used for years to market products. RCA used it to market their color television sets in 1963. The ad said, stamp it with special care this Christmas, give the gift that keeps on giving, from RCA Victor. Kodak Camera used it to market their trimline Instamatic 18 camera in 1977 with the line, the gift that keeps on giving, picture after picture. But honestly, I think the person who said it best was Cousin Eddie in the movie National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. So, so if you remember the movie, Clark was expecting a, a, a big bonus, but it hadn't arrived yet. Uh, it hadn't shown up in the mail, and all the family standing around, and the, the doorbell rings, and there at the door stands kind of a sheepish mail delivery guy, and he he's very apologetic. This, this had fallen between the seats, and he wanted to be sure that it got delivered. And So Clark takes the envelope, and he slams the door in his face, and he holds it up, and it's, it's from his company and he just knows this is the Christmas bonus he's been waiting on. And so, in front of the whole family, he walks around and, and starts sharing with them all of the amazing things he's going to do with his Christmas bonus. In fact, he tells them all that he's going to put a swimming pool in with this bonus. And, and it's good news that the check showed up, because he had been sweating it out a little bit. He had actually already written the deposit check for it, and, and the check was going to bounce, but, but now everything was going to be okay. And this year, he thought maybe there would be enough left over to take everyone on a vacation. And, you know, they're all excited. And he talks about in the spring, he's going to invite them in for the dedication of the swimming pool. And so everyone's saying, Clark, open it. We want to see how much it is. Open it. And he peels back the envelope and peers inside. And the color kind of falls from his face. And his wife says, Is it more than you expected? And he reads, subscription to the jelly of the month club and from the back of the room the only voice you can hear is awkward cousin eddie say clark that's the gift that keeps on giving the whole year Be it a jelly of the month subscription or a camera or a color television we can all admit that a gift that continues to provide benefit long after getting it is one of the best types of gifts to get like these socks that I intend to wear for many years to come. <clears throat> so this time of year we think a lot about gifts. We often talk about Christ as the greatest gift that God has given us. And I want to dig a little more into this thought by reading Matthew chapter 16 verses 13 through 18. So I'd like for you all to open your Bibles and turn there with me to Matthew chapter 16 13 through 18. While you're getting there, just a little bit of context, this passage is significantly past the birth of Christ. He's in his 30s in the middle of his public ministry here. Um, And this passage gives us a glimpse into a teaching moment between Jesus and his disciples that really serves as a hinge point in his focus. In fact, immediately after this text, um, we see that Jesus begins the process of preparing his disciples for his impending death and resurrection. Let's read together verses 13 through 18 of Matthew 16. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ. The Son of the Living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We often talk about the gift of Christ, but we don't often notice. One of the most important gifts from Christ, and that is the church. The gift that has been giving for 2,000 years and will continue to give until all of God's people are called home. This morning, we are going to look at first at these words of Jesus, and we're going to think about what makes the church special. We're then going to talk about the, what the church is not, some things that the church is, and finally, we're going to end by getting personal and talking about where you fit in the church. There are several things about the church I notice when I read this dialogue between Jesus and Peter. But I want to start the discussion with this Our most foundational takeaway is that the church is built on the identity. On the deity of Christ. You know, when you first read this passage, it's a little bit odd how Jesus refers to Peter. Then you read about the original language and learn that Peter and rock are almost the same word in Greek, Petros and Petros. And this can make you wonder if Jesus was saying that he would build his church on Peter, the apostle, or whether he would build his church on Peter's confession, Peter's statement about who he was. While I'm sure there's some wordplay going on with Peter's name, I believe Jesus was speaking of Peter's confession as the rock on which the church was built, not on Peter. My main reason for thinking this comes in the immediate context, because just a few verses later, Jesus rebukes Peter and calls him Satan. What's the difference? Well, the difference is Peter's words, his statements. When he confessed Jesus as the Son of God... He was praised, and when he argued against the need for Jesus' death, he was rebuked. The truth Peter spoke, the rock Jesus references, was a big deal. Jesus said that it was not revealed by flesh and blood, but by God in verse 17. This entire passage hinges on the central point, the identity of Christ as the Son of God, and that is the the foundational nugget of truth upon which Jesus was going to build His church. If Jesus was just a, a prophet, if Jesus was just a really good teacher... If Jesus was any other kind of man, his church would have been built on an unstable foundation. And it wouldn't have lasted. Everything the church does centers around and hinges on Jesus as God. So it is fitting to have a Christmas sermon about the church. While the world speaks of the birth of Christ, we stand as a lasting witness to a big reality. He was not an ordinary child. He was divine. He was the Son of God. There are numerous realities that testify to this, but but a big one, a huge one, is his church that has persevered throughout time because of the rock on which it was built. I see another important reality in our text that I want you to notice Jesus built the church. On this rock, I will build my church. You know, we have a painting on our wall that Brooke Stevens, one of our members, made. Our kids think it's really cool because it's an actual canvas, so it has a space behind it, and they can hide things back there. So we obviously don't have nice things at our house. But it really is special, aside from just being able to hide things behind it. It's special because you look around the house, and most of the stuff that we own is just prints from a big box store. But that particular item hanging on our wall has special significance because we know who made it. Is the church so different? We know who made it, and that makes it special. The local churches spread across the globe aren't just duplicate prints of God's art project that He distributed throughout the world. They bear the brushstrokes of Jesus Himself, the Son of God. Do we ever stop and realize how valuable that makes each community? The church is built on the deity of Christ, and it's built by the master craftsman, Christ. But it doesn't end there, because Christ says this, On this rock I will build my church. He didn't say, I will build a church. He didn't say, I will build the church. He didn't say, I will build you a church. He said, I will build my church. Have you ever driven a car that didn't belong to you? you drive it a little different than you drive your own, don't you? We often treat the church like it is ours, but it isn't. The church is Christ's possession. I think we can be misled by this realization if we aren't careful. In our language or in our culture, Possession implies a type of of domineering power that can be exercised over something. And while I believe we can make a biblical argument for Christ's absolute power over the church, the Bible frames it in a different light. Christ's authority over the church isn't exercised through force or through power, but through relationship. In Ephesians 5, that we're going to look at later, we read that the church is the bride of Christ. He doesn't possess the church like you would possess an object. His claim on the church is relational and absolute. We are His church, just like my wife is my wife. He is our leader and our protector and our confidant and our friend. And His possession of us is rooted in love. And finally, I want you to take notice of the fourth reality that Jesus points out. His church is powerful. He says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, a gate is a defensive object. It's a defensive tool. It is used to keep a a bad person out, or you could also use it to keep your kids in, which we do a lot at our house. Hell is the stronghold of Satan, and his gates are not sufficient against the advances of Jesus' church. He can't protect himself from the church of Christ, and he can't keep anyone locked away who wants to escape to Christ. So we see that the true church is a divine organization built on the deity of Christ, built by Christ, possessed by Christ, and tasked with crushing the strongholds of Satan. So, as we start to wrap our mind around the things that make the church so special, we haven't really defined what it is. Jesus doesn't do that in this passage, so we have to survey some other evidence to wrap our mind around what he means when he says, "my church." And I wanted to start this part of the discussion by pointing out one key thing the church is not. An idea that is absent in Scripture, but that we might have adopted because of our culture. After that, we'll jump through several passages talking about what it is. The church is not your relationship with Christ. It is not a personal thing. You know, we live in a world where everything spiritual is considered personal or internal. There's some biblical truth here. We have souls. Paul talks about his inner being There are spiritual realities that exist apart from physical realities, so I understand that. But what is interesting about our culture is that we have completely split the physical from the spiritual. So we have spiritual things in one compartment, like feelings and values, and we view that as contrasting with physical things that we put in another compartment, like the laws of science or a human organization So, within a normal human organization, like Boy Scouts, for example, it would be odd for someone to call themselves a Boy Scout but never go to the meetings, nor do any of the activities, and refuse to wear the outfit or follow the code of conduct. This is because we understand that this organization exists in the physical realm. I'm afraid with the church, we tend to put it in the spiritual category, with everything else religious and And it's viewed as safe and harmless as long as it stays personal and internal. So we might gather together with people who share these same values or internal beliefs. And that gathering might look like it's a physical thing, but because our gathering is based on values and not reality, it's not the same thing. If we hold this view, we can believe things like this. I believe in Christ, but I don't believe in religion. Or, I love Jesus, but not the church. Or, even though I haven't been going to church, I've been prioritizing my relationship with Christ, so I'm okay. Or, what matters is that my relationship with God is right. Or, God added me to the church, so I don't need to join a local one, because it's just a human organization. Here's the problem. The Bible doesn't split reality into two distinct realms. It recognizes and combines them together. You may have feelings, but you also have a body that was made by God, and its actions matter to Him. Your personal connection with Christ is important, and and while there are distinct and personal elements of our faith, our true relationship with Him has both an internal and an external element. And the church is the tangible, physical engine that defines our relationship with Christ, Jesus Jesus looked like a man, and he he walked like a man, and he talked like a man, and he was a man. In fact, at the beginning of our key text, what question do you ask? Who do you say the Son of Man is? He called himself the Son of Man. It's a very physical element of who he was. But then the confession, we find out that he was also Christ, the Son of the living God. He was a man, but he was God at his core. The church looks like a human organization and it and it functions like a human organization and and it even is a human organization but it's entirely and wholly divine at the same time when jesus said on this rock i shall build my church he encompasses this idea the church is totally founded in divine realities The church is under the total possession of divine beings, and the church has a totally divine purpose, but it exists and is composed of people. So what is the church? I suppose I've started answering that already. The church is a divine organization made of humans with structure, expectations, and responsibilities, and it's central to our daily walk with Christ. So we've established from our key text that it's a divine organization. I want to point out the obvious, obvious fact. It is composed of humans. I think this is something we can let drift out of sight. God established this pattern of interacting with mankind in the Old Testament when He set a group of people aside for Himself, and He continues it into the New Testament. We see in Acts chapter 2, verse 47, that the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. We can, use this, uh, we can use this passage incorrectly if we aren't careful. By pointing out that the Lord was the one adding the people, we can hyper-individualize it and make it seem as if our belonging to the group is less important than God's action of proclaiming us as part of the group but that's not so. Those are both important. The point here is that we don't add ourselves. We aren't the ones added because of our genealogy. We don't get the privilege of adding others. God does the adding, but He adds us to something, and that something is a community of people. In Acts 2.44, it describes that community right before. All who believed were together, and had all things in common. So, it's a divine organization. It is made of humans. It also has structure and expectations and responsibilities. In saying this, I'm trying to point out an important reality. The church exists in this world in the same fashion that other human organizations exist. It's not a loosey-goosey, everything-goes blob of nothingness. When Jesus built his church, he built it with design and purpose. So we read through the New Testament and we see that there was a structure to what we find. Paul appointed elders in Acts chapter 14, verse 23. Scripture speaks of the office of deacons and elders in 1 Timothy 3. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul calls the church a body. And, and he uh, discusses extensively the different, distinct, and important roles that the members play. You know, in high school, I competed in FFA, Parliamentary Procedure, and we learned how to conduct business meetings and manage group decisions. While we as the church certainly have more leeway in how we conduct business than a parliamentary procedure handbook, we do have structure, and there is an organization to to how we're set up. Adding to the picture of structure is our expectations and responsibilities. There's both internal and external. Um, Looking at the internal first, we see in 1 Corinthians 5 about the responsibility that we have to preserve a unique identity by setting standards for the type of behavior that we admit in our members, that we permit in our members. This was a case of sexual misconduct in 1 Corinthians 5, but at the end he lists a wide range of other behaviors that we are not to permit. Furthermore, we see an expectation of encouragement in building one another up. In 1 Corinthians 14.5, 1 Corinthians 14.12, and Hebrews 10.24 we're called to this. We see examples of the church gathering to learn and grow. In Colossians 4.16, we see that they gathered together to read the letters of the apostles. In Galatians 6.2, we read about the expectation of sharing one another's burdens. We also see that there were external expectations, expectations in the community. In Ephesians 3.10, we read that the church is the conduit through which the rulers and authorities in heavenly places are exposed to the manifold wisdom of God. In 2 Corinthians 5, 18-20, we read that we, as the church, are given the ministry of reconciliation, serving as ambassadors for Christ and bringing the world back to Him. So it has structure. It has expectations and responsibilities. And finally, we see that the church is central to our daily walk with Christ. And this is probably the thing that we most often forget. Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians 5 verses 22 through 23, there's a beautiful metaphor painted of Christ and the church and a marriage. And I think it's important to notice if you read through this passage that it never talks about you as the bride of Christ. It talks about the church as the bride of Christ. Our relationship with him is only through the collective identity we have as his bride. Verses 23 and 24 For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So we start with the idea of headship and submission to him. But the text goes on to say this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. We see here that Christ gave himself for us. He is working to make us holy and clean, not you, us. Now I realize there's a little bit of semantics there. The church is composed of individuals, and and I realize that the cleansing of a group requires the individual washing of its members. But I think we need to understand the significance of what's being said here. You know, later on, the text goes on to refer to the husband and wife becoming one flesh. And then it says this, This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church our oneness with christ happens in the context of the church there are no lone wolves here individually we are just people weak and battered by sin and together we become something more something the gates of hell can't stand against Because together, we belong to Christ as His bride. You know, we hear the word church, and we associate it with listening to a sermon. I think pre-COVID, we associated it with coming to the building and listening to a sermon, and we might have even lost a little bit of that. I think our view of church is too small. Listening to a sermon doesn't make you part of a community of believers. It doesn't make you part of the church that Jesus has built and committed himself to being one with. Meaningful membership means embracing all that the church is, the human side included. This means the people, the structure, and the purpose. You are called to live in relationship with others, to bear one another's burdens, to encourage one another, and to reconcile the world to God. You're called to do this in groupings of people, the local church, that follow the biblical model of meeting together and studying together and submitting to the guidance of elders. Being present, participating, and submitting to the local church is a spiritual discipline central to who we are as Christ followers. You can't be a Christ follower without belonging to His church. You may have some discretion as to which local church to be a part of. But you don't get to decide if you're going to be part of one. There really is no substitute for meaningful membership. The gift of Christ was huge. But if that was all that there was, this season is marked to be the celebration of a historical event that's done. The presence of Christ was marked by the establishment of the gift that keeps on giving. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and on this rock the church has been built. So, I ask this question, are you a member of a Bible-teaching church? I know we have a lot of visitors here today. We also have a lot of members. This question's for everyone. I don't care if you have gone to church for 30 years. I'm asking you the question, are you a member? Do you belong in a Bible-teaching community of believers? What a glorious gift God has given us, the gift of community and belonging and hope. You need to find a Bible-teaching church. You need to submit to its leadership. You need to commit to its purpose by being present and engaged. You know, I am partial to this local church. We teach the Bible here. We are led by prayerful, God-fearing men, and we are composed of God-loving, neighbor-loving, burden-bearing believers. And while I'm partial to this one, I don't think we're the only one. If you're traveling... You need to find a church in your community. If you're from here and don't think this is the place for you, I would first remind you that our real preacher will be back next week. <laughs> but that's, that's fine with me. You need to find a place to belong. If you have questions and you need help discerning what to look for in a church, call the office and, and we will help you with that. We can walk through the marks of a biblical church. You know, I know we have a lot of people joining us online maybe because of holiday travels, and if you're one of our members who's traveling, I'm thankful for the technology that allows you to do this, and we are excited to hear about your stories next week. If you're joining us online because of COVID, and I know that has done a, done a number on a lot of people, we're thankful for the technology that allows us to still be together in some form. But you know, you, you need more connection than just a worship service. You need to be serving to the degree that your health allows. You know, we've tried to do a good job of staying engaged with our membership, and it's been tough knowing who needs extra encouragement. So, if you're someone who's sitting out there listening and you need some extra encouragement and you don't feel like you're getting it, call us and let us know so that we can be sure we're engaging, that we're bearing the burdens like we are called to. But we still encourage you to be involved in the work. There are things that you can do even if you can't be here in purpose, in in person. You can write notes. We have a whole evangelism program called World Bible School that, that can be conducted through the mail and online. You need to be serving no matter where you are. If you're joining us online because it's more convenient, you need to be here. This is a special and powerful gift that sustains our spiritual life. Without it, without the church, we are wasting away spiritually. If that's you, I invite you to join us next week and engage with the work and reboot your relationships. If you've been attending worship, but you're not connected, if you're not connected socially into to the work of a ministry here, I want to call you to take advantage of the gift that keeps giving. This church has been built on the rock of Jesus, the church that the gates of hell don't stand a chance against. Thank God for Christ's birth, thank God for His resurrection, and thank God for the church. If you have a need this morning, we invite you to come forward as we stand and as we sing.